Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Janessa Leone, founder and creative director of her namesake fashion brand that's best known for cool girl hats. Janessa launched the brand 10 years ago despite a lack of prior fashion experience, and it's since earned fans including Meghan Markle and Taylor Swift. She's also cracked the code on regenerative agriculture using the process to create a collection with a carbon negative net positive impact, which is no easy feat. Welcome, Janessa. Yay, thank you. So happy to be here. Really excited about this conversation. Same here. So happy to have you. And it seems to make sense with Earth Month and we're talking regenerative agriculture. But before we jump into all of that, I tell you what, I was telling somebody on my team, Sarah, I was like, I'm having Janessa Leone on the podcast today. And she was like, oh my God, (laughs) ask, I need her foldable hat. Like anyway, she knew who you were right off the bat. She knew all about your styles, your signature, signature looks. Um, Talk to me 10 years in. Like, first of all, how does she know you? (laughs) What have you done to grow awareness? I'm sure there's a lot that's been going into this. Yeah, I cannot believe it's been 10 years. Um, I mean, I I still feel like I'm early in my 20s, which I'm very much not. Uh, But yeah, it has been an adventure for sure. Um, I started this quite blindly, which I think actually is part of potentially the success that I've experienced. I didn't necessarily go into this and have a business plan and I didn't go out and find funding and I didn't like go out with this extraordinary intentionality. Um, If I did, I might not have done it ironically because I didn't realize what it was actually required. But I think the really authentic, slow, organic growth um, is exactly why people know about us. Um, and I think it's been able to allow us to grow in a way that once we actually did get to a point that we had to be really intentional and operationalize the business and really, you know, grow up, if you will, we had this really extraordinary groundswell of organic support because we didn't have marketing money in the very beginning. We didn't, there were so many things that didn't go into it. So it was just pure and authentic. And we had a really strong foundation to jump off on. Amazing. Well, let's start at the beginning. For somebody without a fashion background, I mean, had you worked retail? Like, to what extent was there a fashion background? And what really attracted you? Hats were the first thing out of the bat, yeah? Yeah, hats were the very first thing. No, I had never worked a retail job. I was the two previous things I had for work experience were a hostess at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and yes. I was a nanny. <laughs> Oh very, gosh. very, not very relevant experience. Um, when I graduated college, I studied English literature and I was planning on going to law school. Um, and I went to Paris for my very first time. It was my first trip to Europe. And I, I had kind of had a, a, an experience there where I was like, there is this whole world out there that I haven't been exposed to. My family wasn't necessarily, my family never, still has never gone to Europe. It wasn't something that I was exposed to. So I got to experience it for my own and um, kind of be like, oh, there, there's something that can be mine in this world that wasn't given to me that I can explore and find on my own. And I found this vintage hat in the Marais, which is actually very close to my, I, I split my time between Paris and LA. So it's a close to my now apartment, which is completely just uncanny and it didn't, it wasn't planned. I found this vintage hat and I brought it back to California and it was kind of the, I, I got a lot of compliments and I realized 
even though I loved hats and I come from this Italian American family that always wore hats, there was it was really hard at that moment to find a really well made hat um, that wasn't necessarily made in China or gone. Um, someone like a bespoke milliner would have made that would have been extraordinarily expensive. And so I saw this niche in the market and I really wanted to get into fashion. And I felt like that was my way in after reading stories from Chanel and Lanvin and Halston. I was like really swept away with the idea that they all started as milliners. Uh, so yeah, so I was like, this is my way in and I'm just going to, you know, get my feet wet and make a name for myself and expand from there. And 10 years later, here we are. Yes. And this was, would you say it's like the birth of the Instagram era? Were you leveraging exactly. Instagram at the time to your yeah. advantage? No wholesale partners out of the gate? Um, well, I actually started with wholesale. Got so it. So it was, um, yes, it was Instagram. It was very a very lucky era of Instagram where it was completely organic. You're really able to get growth and um, people like exposure without having to do advertising or actually having to like hit the algorithm right. It was just like people really wanted to follow people and explore. And it was at the the conception of that. Um, and I met um, a editor very early on um, who just like very luckily, and she connected me with different editors and stylists. And I got like just a kind of a fortunate break of she supported me and sent different hats that I had out to different people. And then all of a sudden I had Barney's knocking on my door and they wanted to be our first wholesale partner F far before I even, even knew. I didn't even have a full supply chain yet. The sampling that I had done very early on that, that vendor actually went out of business by the time I got Barney's order. So I had to go back to the drawing board. It was a, it was a full, just try to figure out how to make this work. Uh, so we launched in wholesale and we actually didn't launch direct-to-consumer for four years after that. Oh my gosh. I mean, what great partners out of the gate. Yeah, Whenever you fortunate. were, yes, you were linking with uh, factories, manufacturers. Right. Basically, did you have a mentor or somebody to help you and advise you as you're figuring out margins and all of these things that like, I wouldn't know how to go about? I had good old-fashioned Google. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I didn't have anyone who was who understood it. I was still living at my dad's house in San Diego who owned an accounting firm. Like I said earlier, I, don't, I didn't have any exposure to this type of world. My family did very traditional. My, my dad was an accountant and my mom worked in my school. And so it was like really traditional paths. So this, this course for me was kind of uncharted. So I utilized Google a lot and I called people. Um, I would just send blind emails or get on a phone and call someone and ask them questions to say, like, how do I do this? And um, Google was my friend to tell me to, like, double the cost. And that's your wholesale margin. And then double that cost again. And then that's your retail margin. And it was just like, all right, let's, let's make this work. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Spectacular. When, when you said you um, live part-time in Paris or in yeah. Europe, um, I honestly, I was thinking an LA brand, um, but is a large majority of your of your sales, of your business happening in Europe? And I... It, it's a growing market. Uh, the majority of our of our sales still are in America, in LA and New York. Um, so very traditionally where like, you know, luxury fashion happens in America. Uh, but yeah, we, we do have a growing market throughout Europe and in Asia. It's, it's someplace that I 
like having my place in Paris is more just like a design office for me, really inspirational, especially during COVID, I was able to go and um, just kind of everyone was working remote. So it made a lot of sense for me to go there and get inspiration. Oh my gosh. Let's dig into what your experience during the pandemic. I would think people are staying home. Maybe they don't need a hat, but also the swimwear industry boomed and maybe people are out sunning themselves. <laughs> but yeah. What was your experience? Um, well, I mean, like I think majority of people, the March 2020 was terrifying, um, especially because we still have a really big wholesale business. And a lot of our merchandise, our, our, our huge season is spring, summer, because a lot of straw hats. And a lot of our merchandise had already gone out. Um, and while, you know, while things were getting trucked to warehouses, the world shut down. And so we'd get emails from big box retailers that we depend on. They were like, our warehouse is shut down and that, that stuff just got sent right back. So there was, it was definitely scary uh, for the first couple weeks. And, you know, I felt like I was a lawyer and a, I was a therapist for my team and I was still trying to design and run a business. And it was just like, I was wearing, no pun intended, but a lot of different hats. <laughs> and, um, then we realized, you know, it was such an opportunity for us because we did get a lot of wholesale units back, um, which is high volume, but it let us grow into our direct channels because we absorbed that inventory. I saw an ability to really early on double down in, in digital marketing spend and be able to reach a customer that was sitting at home on their phones with, you know, not a lot to look forward to and be able to speak to them in a way that to cherish the small moments, because at the end of the day, if even if you're in your backyard, you're not on the coast of Italy, but you're in your backyard, you still need to protect your skin. So we had a, we were very fortunate um, and I feel very grateful, but we had our, we had, you know, over 100% growth on our direct-to-consumer channels, um, even though our retail channels were were completely shut down for a couple months. But we 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 did well, and it was it was a great opportunity to acquire a lot of new customers and have a relationship and a connection with people. How great! How has that kind of stabilized in terms of your channels, direct versus retail, wholesale? Yeah, so we we're predominantly direct now. Um, we're seventy percent direct, um, and. We, um, it, you know, it's, it's, we're not growing in the same rate that we grew that year, but no, that was completely unsustainable and we wouldn't have been able to and maintained being self-funded because we still have not take on, taken on any investment. So I feel like it was a great opportunity to acquire a bunch of customers and now we got to focus on retaining those customers and, and talking to them and building authentic relationships with them. Uh, but we still have maintained the the big shift of being able to be direct to consumer mainly. Amazing. Tell me about the edit and what's happening in terms of your own retail. Yeah, so that that was our very first retail store that we actually started as a pop up um, with a friend of mine who owns a shoe brand who I went to college with, and this was our first foyer into retail. And so it was, you know, a pop up is a really great opportunity to understand how does this work. Like even the operations, like, you know, you, there's so many things you wouldn't have even known that you would have to buy until you get, the, <laughs> you test this out. Um, so it was a, it was a great way to enter into retail, um, which with a really low risk because it wasn't something that we were locked into a long lead of a, a overhead and um, it worked really well. And so we stayed on and we took the, the lease over as our own and we made it into our flagship 
And um, yeah, that's our that's our home base in LA. And it's a really fun, beautiful way to connect with customers. I mean, if you think about it, hats, which is the majority of our business, um, it's something you want to try on. It's it's a very hard thing to buy online. And so you want, you, know, you probably know your shoe size, surely know your shoe size and your, your pant size, but you probably don't know your hat size unless you're an avid hat wearer and you know exactly how big your hat is. <laughs> I was thinking, I bet I'm an extra large while looking at your hats. It's so funny. (laughs) It's so funny. The people that are like, oh, I bet I'm this. And it's like, it actually doesn't really follow suit. Like I hear it from men a lot. I'm like, oh, my wife and my girlfriend is very petite. So she must be a small. And I'm like, that's so, that's sweet, but it makes no sense. (laughs) It actually is completely irrelevant. Uh, But yeah, so um, I, I do think though that people that are like, oh, I'm a large, most likely because they've tried hats on and they're like, oh, I know I have a big head, uh, which is nice. I think a lot of the customers come to us because we do have full range of sizing. Amazing. Well, tell me about your team. Um, when I creeped you on LinkedIn, about <laughs> a dozen employees or is it more than that? We have more than that. Um, we, in the majority of people are in LA. Um, we have, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in the last two years. I feel like when COVID happened, it was for, for everyone, I feel like a, a moment to just pause and assess and analyze what's working and what's not working. And there was a lot of broken systems within the business. And then also just within my life, just unsustainable ways that I was trying to approach how I was showing up in this business and how I was expecting other people to show up in this business. And so we really went through a metamorphosis as we kind of figured out like, okay, you know, we, what got us to this point has been extraordinary and exceptional. And every single person that has been a part of this journey is exactly the reason why we're here today. But there's, doesn't necessarily mean it was the right way or the smartest way to do it. And so I took a pause and just kind of looked at, I actually, I hired a a contract COO at that point to kind of help me problem solve this and look at the org chart and just say like, where do we want where, where do we need? Because again, I don't have experience growing a brand or understanding how fashion businesses are built or what positions I should be covered. I, I don't, I never even took a business class myself. And so to try to be the CEO of this size of this company kind of feels a bit asinine, but I think, you know, really trusting my instincts and intuition, and then also knowing where I'm falling short and get some extra help in here to be like, oh, well, this is how people scale and operationalize. And you're missing this role and you're missing this key person. And so I was able to do that and like really be intentional about the team. And now we have like an, we have the extraordinary, like subject matter experts who are showing up that are just like, this is such a it, it, it feels like this massive machine that is like growing and it makes me, it's, it's the proudest I've ever been in business when I look out and I see the team and be like, wow, this is a really big thing that is no longer just m- like mine. This is like outside of me and we're all working together and it's working and it feels really good. I mean, was that uncomfortable to, I guess, take, lose some, I would say maybe lose con- some control in terms of doing everything yourself. Tell me about that transition. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's something that every founder goes through, but when something that is yours, that you've built, that you've literally created from nothing, like none of this existed, and then you show up and you have to, you have to do so many things at the same time. You have to grow at a rate that your company is scaling. 
And you also have to take a step back and realize what your weaknesses are. You have to be really self-aware to be able to like in kind with yourself to be like, I'm not good at that, but it's okay. I'm good at this. And so there's so many psychological things that are happening at the same time. And then when you get people in the door that are really good at what they do and see your vision, then you have to practice the like, let go of your hand and just let them be, let them do and let them like run because you know, it's no, there's no point to have these people here. If you're going to try to control and manage and micromanage the whole point they're there is because you realized that's not something that you could do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it still is a, a learning curve and a growing process for sure. Uh, but it works really well when you just kind of trust and know, and just also like release the pressure to get it perfect because every time we make a mistake, we're stronger from it. And as long as we're, we're, you know, leveraged enough to not let mistakes take you down and ruin the business. And, um, you know, you, it really makes you a lot stronger. It's such a cliche, but it really does. Definitely. Tell me about some of those roles, positions. Are they focused on e-commerce or maybe marketing or things I would never think of? I think, so I've always looked at it as how can I fill in the gaps of the things that I actually am not uniquely qualified to do and just bad at? (laughs) (laughs) And so a lot of the roles in our business are um, really analytical, strategic roles that aren't necessarily my skill set. So like we have, you know, supply chain, which is a huge, which I'm I'm sure we'll get into, but when we're we're re we're completely inventing supply chains from actual farms that do not exist. And there's so many logistical challenges in that. So I need a supply chain team that understands how these things all work together. And then, you know, you, you look at how these things are also cross-functional and how they work together. And you look at in order to have the supply chain team that's making a product, then you have to have someone who's really good at analysis and planning and assortment and merchandising and running the numbers and making sure our buys are correct. So our inventory is not completely overloaded. And then I have a COO who is sitting here who is like kind of just like, you know, massaging all the parts that oversees it all and make sure that the mechanisms are all running together. Um, we have a, I think the largest part of our department is marketing, which I actually lead. Um, which is my what where I find so much satisfaction, and I love the storytelling part of things. I love the visual creative. Um, I'm still the the only actual designer, um, the concept designer. I have I have a technical designer now because that is also not something that I I learned how to do it, but it's just not efficient for me to do. Um, that's a, such a skill set. And so we we're we have a wholesale team, we have an operations team, we have a we have the supply chain team, we have the planning and production team. We have the marketing team. So there's like a lot of different teams that all work together. I do want to dig into that supply chain and regenerative agriculture. And I literally have only heard about companies tackling this that are super huge. Like I just talked to caring about it and that they're figuring it out. And, and I heard a lot about that process. And like we said, it's not easy. Um, why, how important is that? And how are you able to make a go of it? I would say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, it's so great to see these big companies tackle this. And, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a member of the textile exchange, um, which, you know, Caring's represented at and LVMH is represented at and everyone who is trying their best to co- show up and do this. And the problems are big. And I think that we're uniquely positioned because 
of what I was saying earlier, that we've grown this so sustainably um, and slowly that we're able to, we, we don't have these massive supply chains that we have to completely deconstruct and reinvent while we're still, you know, making thousands of products a year, millions of products a year for some people. Um, we're able to design this from scratch. And so our wool supply chain has been in the works for about three years, but we didn't have a wool supply chain before that. So we didn't have to tear it down to build it back up. We just built it. And we built it slow from the start. And I mean, I think when I was looking at in, in this period of COVID, this is kind of where this all happened. When I just took a pause and I assessed, you know, my life, how I'm showing up in it, the business, like it was just kind of like, I'm looking at all of the different things. This is when I moved to Paris and it was just more or less like, you know, I'm, I'm no longer early 20s when I started this. I kind of need to like, take a pause and look at where I want to go for the next 10 years and seeing, you know, the, the impact this industry has on the negative impact this industry has on so many different things, but also trying to shift the perspective to say like, well, well, there's then the opportunity. If we know that we have such a huge impact for greenhouse gas emissions and waste and all these different things, we then, if we get this right and we turn the tide, we have such a huge opportunity to make such an extraordinary difference. And when I was digging into it, I realized the majority of, it's about 80% of the damage that happens on at this end, like from the greenhouse gas perspective, this industry happens at the raw material sourcing and production stage. And that's also where people don't usually have transparency into their supply chains. And so a lot of people are trying to gain that. But usually how this industry works is you go to a vendor and they do full package production. And so that vendor is then responsible for sourcing the raw materials. They're dealing with their vendors and then they're just giving you a complete done product. And you don't necessarily know where they got all the things that went into what you, you're buying as a finished product. And so... If we can solve that problem of the raw material processing, we have reduced 80% of our overall impact. And then not only can you reduce the impact in that on that level, but if you source it from a climate beneficial process, which regenerative agriculture has been proven to increase carbon stores in the soil, to increase the water retention, to like benefit biodiversity. It is just, you look every single thread you pull it is a net positive, net positive, net positive. And all of these things are actually yielding a better product. Our wool has a finer micron than cashmere. So we're actually able to yield an extraordinary luxury product and also have quantifiable impact on the earth. And then also have complete supply chain visibility because we're working with ranchers that are raising the sheep. So it's just, it feels like a win-win on every single avenue. And we are a relatively small brand compared to, you know, how everyone else is doing it. But I feel like if we can, if we can be the proof of concept that this works and we can make this profitable, because at the end of the day, if the business is not profitable, then no one's going to be paying attention. There's no reason for that business to necessarily exist. So if we can do this, and we can show that it can scale and we can show that it can be profitable, then I would really love to just take it and be like, 
here. Here are all the other massive companies that are really able to see this and make an impact because they might not be able to. They might not be able to to go back and reinvent this and do it all from scratch while still maintaining their business operations going forward. So I am fine to to be the proof of concept and then be like, here's our supply chains, take them and go make your beautiful thing. Cause I believe in this so much. It's amazing for high level for those listening. What is regenerative agriculture? Just sorry. What I is went, it? Maybe I went down a little bit too much of a rabbit hole. No, but um, I just, assume, I had to think like some people may not know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, at the, at the regenerative agriculture at its basis is essentially a really fancy word or phrase for the way nature exists if we don't touch it. <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a way that, that the like soil and the animals and everything would coexist without industrial farming. And so we are just tearing back the basic or tearing back the, the complexities, I guess, that we have constructed in agriculture in our industrial agriculture and we're just going back to how nature does it. So we're bringing animals back onto the land and we're rotationally grazing them. We have to be intentional about it because animals are going to stay where the water is. And so we're going to migrate them. In nature, they wouldn't because then they're going to get chased by a lion or they're going to chase by whatever it is. And so they're going to run around on their own. We have to rotationally graze them and then let the ground rest when they're done tr- like eating the grasses and, you know, having like the, their, their manure and all these different things. And then we let that ground rest and we introduced natural biodiversity via plants and, and different organisms, all these different things. So that all of those, that, that like diverse biodiversity works in synergy together and repairs the soil while it's resting. And then the animals move around and then that process just keeps happening. So it's, it's a, it's a very, sustainable managed land management, I guess is the way to say it, but really it's just mimicking nature. Yes. I feel like it's a complicated, I don't, it's complicated. Like you didn't learn this on Google or maybe you did, but it (laughs) makes great sense. Um, tell me about how much, um, first of all, is it impacting your pricing going this route? Um, it is, I mean, yes and no. I mean, we have always, sourced really locally high quality product. So we've had the ability to build this in without actually having to just kind of abandon our base level product because because of how our brand has been built, it's always been really intentional and sustainable because it's had to be, it's small scale. Anything that's made relatively small scale using artisans, using luxury fibers, most often than not is sustainable. So, but in, for the wool supply chain, we didn't have pricing we were trying to back into because it didn't exist. So we just did it this way, exactly as it was, which is a benefit because then you don't have to meet a price point. You just say this process yields this price point that we're, you know, that in the end has to be. So, so yes and no. It is yeah. expen- it is a more expensive way to do things and you know it's, it is a more expensive way to eat but it's really a question of the value should food be as cheap as we know it to be should clothes be as cheap as we know them to be like I would say no it's just not like you know if we're, we're talking if we're looking for comparing a grass-fed pasture-raised meat to something that is 
you know, full of, of chemicals that's industrial farmed, we can't really compare apples to apples because they're two completely different products. And so it's just a question of what what should the price point be, really? Yes. Tell me the compu- the customer response. Um, is this earning you new customers? Do they are you putting this out in marketing? At this point, is it just a nice to have or it's like it's really driving sales? Um yeah, what's the behavior there? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think everyone want, cares. Everyone wants to do the right thing. No one really wants to buy something that they know is going to do harm. I don't think yet that the customer demand on a whole is driven solely by sustainable practices or regenerative practices. I think really it comes down to trust of companies, which I think is really valuable, but I'll I'll, I'll say Patagonia for a reference because I think they do this really well. When I go and I shop at Patagonia, I am someone who is very, very um, interested in supply chains. And I like to know exactly where everything is sourced. And I do a lot. But there are often times where I just need something that's quite functional. I need a sleeping bag that is going to keep me warm or a, a puffer jacket And I'm not necessarily have the time to go into the entire supply chain and vet it. I trust that they did it. I trust that they did the work necessary. And so I'm shopping specifically with them because of the overall trust that I have. And I also know it's a quality product and they stand behind it. So it's really about company values, which I think is driving the the customer behavior. But I don't think we are at a place yet in society where people are seeking that out specifically just for that thing itself. I think they want their com- the companies they shop for. They kind of also expect the companies that they shop with right now to have some ethos or have some, you know, a bigger purpose than just, you know, producing product with it blindly. Um, but I don't necessarily think that is 100% the driving factor yet. Um, I think we're getting there, but I think it's a, it's a slow movement into people being driven specifically for the impact. Yes. Well, tell me what's driving them. I, I'm looking at your marketing and your Instagram, and you mentioned um, kind of the love for beautiful marketing. I don't know in yeah, what word you yeah. said it, in what way you said it, but it's literally like your investment in beautiful imagery. I don't know if you have video, but tell me about how that factors into your marketing versus like maybe influencers or other. Yeah. I mean, brand is the primary focus for me. And that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier when I said that I feel like this, the slow way that we've been forced to grow this business just because we didn't have investors and it was just like, it was happenstance and we had to, um, I think is what actually has, has been our biggest asset. But for me, the creative and the visual storytelling, um, the the like the aesthetic and the quality of the product are all so connected and it's the like actual lifeblood of this brand. We have yes now since expanded into different channels of marketing and influencer and paid marketing and all these different things but without the like core of the actual brand which is driven by the visual, the authenticity, the, the it's really the soul. Like I feel like in this age of like D2C businesses, there has been a 
sometimes a, a complete um, disregard because of how quickly we've been able to grow brands because digital marketing is almost like a lever. The more you spend, the more you get out. And I feel like that is actually the system that has broken after COVID, which I'm personally very grateful for because I think that we need to go back to the soul of the things that we are buying and we're producing because it really does make a difference. And I think that's something that we've always done because it's I've been the only person that has actually been able to physically produce photo shoots and actually creative direct them and be able to concept them and all the different things. So it's, it's an extension of me and my vision. And I think that that's been a huge asset because it's authentic and it's just, it, it is, it is, you know, my ideal version of the aesthetic of what this brand should be. It's not it's definitely not all of me. That's a, it's a, it's a facet of my character. Um, but I think that that's what makes it really authentic and, and something that it's almost intangible. It's it's like, you know, you can't quantify it. Yes. What have you come to know about the power of celebrity or influencer? I mentioned some celebs that have worn the brand. Is that a gifting thing? Are you, are you gifting it to select people who maybe um, have like values or how would you describe how that's taken off? Yeah. Um, I, so I'll tell you how it launched and then now it, how it works now. So when I started, I was connected to a couple people by like pure luck. And I feel like the the connection was the luck, but they loved the product. And that was obviously all the hard work that went into it. And so I got connected to a celebrity hairstylist um, who was such a, like such a supporter and didn't ever ask for anything for free, which I so appreciated. I would have given it to her, of course, but early on, you know, when I had eight hats that I was able to invest in. Like that's a huge investment for a brand to ask for free product. And for a Christmas gifting one year, she had, you know, she has every possible celebrity that anyone could want to get on. And she gifted 15 of her hats that she bought, which was like a, a a big sale for me at that time. And B, these were coming directly from someone that they knew and they trusted And so they got on to these celebrities, but it was in a really authentic way because they weren't gifted it blindly. It didn't go to some like celebrity PO box where they just get like mass amounts of of free product. It meant something to them because it was someone that they, you know, someone gave it to them as a, as a Christmas gift. Um, And it has a huge power. It it was really, that was kind of what launched the brand. Um, And it had like a huge impact and I'm very grateful for that. And now, so it's, it is still a part of the strategy and now we're a bigger brand and you don't necessarily get a, I mean, there, there's a definitely a lot of organic gifting that happens, organic buying, like Taylor Swift's recent, like the, the, um, I don't know which album she's on now. I feel like she drops albums all the time, but the one that she like re-recorded the red album, we did not gift her the hat that she wore on that cover. She bought it herself. We reached out to the stylist after like saying thank you. And there was like, this was actually Taylor's. Like she found this and bought it and wanted to wear it. So there's a lot of organic stuff that goes on, but yeah, now there is also um, celebrity gifting. I don't pay for celebrities at all because I do like to keep this authentic piece in it. We don't pay for influencers either, but we do gift influencers. Um, And I, I want people to wear it if they truly want to wear it, not because they're paid to wear it and share it if they want to share it. We do not force deliverables and we can't because we don't pay them. So we're not in a, we're in any engaged agree, like professional agreement with, with anyone that wears our, our hats on social media or, or otherwise. Um, but it, I do think it makes it, you know, really intentional, uh, really authentic and intentional. Yeah. 
Yes. Well, tell me, you do more than just hats. I know you do knitwear, you do handbags, other fabulous accessories. Tell me about the uh, category expansion. Is this more recent or that's, that's been slow, slowly coming? It was always a part of the plan. Um, like I wanted to just launch hats and, you know, get a name for ourselves, and then be able to go into a full ready to wear line, um, in my very naive, no planning way that I launched this business. (laughs) Um, but you know, when, as things were starting to scale, we've had to any month, you know, we've been a profitable business year over year, but every profit that we had, we had to just invest right back in and invest in more inventory, especially at the rate at which we've been scaling. And so I've always wanted to expand into different categories. Um, It took us a while. And so now we're able, we've caught up, we've operationalized with the team, we're able to pre-plan years in advance and say, here, you know, with a really strategic thought of launching a new category, instead of just like producing something and putting it out now, it's like, what's the reason? What's the, what's the intentionality? What's the story? What is the business case? Like there's so many different avenues to launch a new category, but, um, so we, we are going to continue to expand. Um, uh, but we have, like you mentioned, we have the regenerative leather, we have the regenerative knitwear, um, we have small accessories that sometimes are just like things I'm really passionate about that I get to trial in the store. Um, we have we have belts, which is was actually like a very it's our largest growing category um, aside from hats. And then you know we'll always have hats, and eventually we'll get into clothes, and we'll we'll just keep growing this thing. Amazing. What's been your take on um, investment fundraising? Is, has that changed? Um, it's not well, not necessarily. I mean, I. And don't plan on taking investment. I don't won't say that I never will. I think right now we're so focused on the impact and the potential that uh, the regenerative luxury fashion can have that if I'm approached with the right opportunity and it makes sense and it's something that will serve the the impact going forward, then yeah, I'm not, I'm never going to say never. But really, it's not the focus for me. The focus for me is to grow this brand in a really thoughtful, sustainable way. And you know, it's it's something that as as you do it, and as like the wheels kind of turn, you can really go faster and faster because the profits that you're making are more and more. Um, and so it, it's we we've modeled the growth that I want. We've modeled it without fundraising, and it's possible. It's definitely it's harder on the team. It's harder on me. Um, but I'm not, I'm not afraid of hard. And I think that it's a way that it demands a lot of careful interrogation of every dollar that's spent, every product that's produced. And I really like that type of business. I like a business that, that does things really, really thoughtfully and looks at it. And it's like, does this product, should this exist in the world? Do like, do we have something unique enough? And does it, is there a reason for it to be instead of just being? And I and I like that tension and I like the constraint. And I think it really helps our business. Nice. Tell me your other goals for the year, the remainder of 2023. So we are so um, focused on our impact goals for 2030. So we we have a lot of supply chain goals and we're really um you know the quantification of the the carbon impact that we can have and we're trying to make our entire supply chain carbon negative quantifiably carbon negative not by gar- not by buying carbon offsets which yeah. you know I'm not knocking it's a, it's a, if if you're going to do anything do <laughs> like yeah. you know do something that is 
that's net zero for sure and help other people like, you know, get, get the carbon out of the air for sure. It's not just about carbon though. Um, but we want to create a supply chain that actually benefits the, the earth that we're living on. Um, and I feel like it's a bit of a race. Uh, and so not, not a race against other brands, but like just a race against how quickly depleting these ecosystems are becoming. So that's what I am so focused on this year. And of course, like maintaining a really healthy team and make, making sure that our products are, you know, the top standard and the design is there. It's just like, you know, it feels like I have a really high bar for what I, what I put all of our products and all of our things through. Um, And so it's really just about maintaining that and growing this really carefully and thoughtfully. I love it. One last question. I have to know, it seems so differentiated (laughs) among online retailers or DTC sites. How in the world are you offering complimentary international shipping? (laughs) I mean, that is so amazing. I haven't seen that. Yeah. um, Well, so the long story is it took us a very long time to find the right partner to be able to do that with. Um, so we work with a, um, and since it's a, you know, an industry type of, of podcast, we work with a consolidator and so we can get really good prices because it goes through consolidation warehouses and whether it's in New York or LA, depending on what type of the world it's going through. And then it gets shipped to a consolidation in London or in Paris or wherever it is. And then it gets, it gets piecemealed out through local mail there um, and so it's really, that was a logistics solve and yeah, it's expensive, but our product's expensive and, you know, we're able to, we have a margin that we can build in to do something like this. Uh, but really it's just, it was just a really great unlock in a logistical piece that we, we work with a consolidator that can get it there quickly and cheaply. I mean, fantastic. Janessa, this was fantastic. It was so good to chat today. So great to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.